Good morning, Peachtree Church. It is an absolute pleasure for me to be here with you. I'm delighted to bring you the message this morning. On this great big ball that we call home, there are 7.6 billion people living. One little planet in an entire galaxy. One little solar system in the midst of a vast universe. 7.6 billion people. What is one little life? What is just one person? Well, I'm one of them. So are you. I'm Barry Gattard. I'm the new pastor for spiritual formation. I have been here at this job now for six days. So I am brand new here. Thank you. And the topic that we're going to look at this morning is the fear of insignificance. We're doing this sermon series called Unafraid. And Rich kicked it off last week talking about what fear does to us. And today and over the course of a number of weeks, we're going to look at different fears, different things that bring terror to us, but more importantly, to be able to look at God's word, look at the truth and see how it speaks to those fears. Today's topic is the fear of insignificance. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about what is insignificance and then flip that around and talk about what is significance. We'll look at that both from what the world says as well as what God says in Scripture. And then ultimately to try to answer the question, so what? What does that mean for us? How how do we then live as a result? But here in a nutshell, just in one sentence, this is the message. To deal with the fear of insignificance, to understand our significance, we need to know who we are, and whose we are. To understand significance, we need to know who we are and whose we are. So that really is the sermon. If you would like to leave now, you are welcome to. I hope you'll stick around with me. I have a little bit more to say. Let's talk about what is insignificance. I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time trying to define that because I feel like it's something that we know and experience daily in our jobs, in our homes, in our uh, organizations that we're a part of, in the schools that we go to. We constantly get this message, you're not quite good enough. You don't measure up. Or at least we begin to feel, I'm not smart enough, I'm not powerful enough, I'm not important enough, I'm just one of 7.6 billion people out there in the earth. Have you ever felt that way? Is there anyone here who has never felt that way? Because if you never at any time and at any place in your life have not felt insignificant, this message isn't for you. But it is for the rest of us who at some time, in some place, in some level, have struggled with these feelings of insignificance. I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me where I felt incredibly insignificant. Now, you know I've just started, so I moved to Atlanta just this week and have had the joy of setting up utilities and service providers where you don't speak to a person ever. You only speak to an automated system. Boy, you talk about feeling unimportant and unvalued and insignificant. But this is a story about something that happened to me about six months ago or so. 
When I came back from overseas, I lived at that point in Northern Virginia, just right outside of Washington, D.C. And my son came to visit one weekend, and we, were, we went out to eat, and we went to this local brewery called the Andre Brewery. All right? Now, on the menu there, as we walked in, we discovered this dish. It's kind of like a poutine, but it is French fries covered with duck confit and then this light brown gravy over it. It is absolutely incredible. It's amazing. So when he would come in town, we would go to the Henri Brewery and we would enjoy the duck confit fries until one day I was driving down Smoketown Road. That was the route I took almost every single day. And I looked ahead and I saw the Henri Brewery and the sign had been taken down. Well, are they closing? Maybe they're going to undergo renovation and open up bigger and better so that more people can enjoy the duck confit fries, right? Or maybe they're closing down here because they're going to open up somewhere else. I wanted to know that. But I didn't know how I could find that out. But as I drove past, I was able to look over and I could see the front door and there was a piece of paper taped to that door. Ah, that's where I'll get my answer. I'm smart enough. I'm clever enough. I'm important enough. And, and let's be honest, who doesn't like to be the person in the know, right? The one who gets to go tell everyone else, oh, well, the ordinary brewery is going to open up again on this date and you can get the duck confit fries where they open over there. So I needed to see what that sign said. But here's the problem. In order to go there, you had to turn in about a block and a half back this way. And you had to turn in, go down this street, turn into the shopping center. And then there was a long strip mall that came all the way along. And the ordinary brewery was at the end of it, right next to Smoketown Road. But there wasn't an entrance there. And every day I kept driving past, see the sign, think I've got to remember someday to stop in there. That went on for a couple of weeks. One day I was out running some errands and I needed to stop at a store in that shopping center. And as I turned in, I thought, this is it. I can find out what that sign says. I can read now and I can know and I will be smarter than everyone. I will be better than everyone. I will be a person of incredible significance. So I finished my errand. I drove all the way around. I was able to pull right up in front of the Ornery Brewery because there were no cars there because it was closed, right? And I pulled right up front. I knew I would finally have my answer and I looked at that sign. Do you want to know what that sign said? Please use other door. <laughs> I still don't know. I still happen to believe that there are probably some people out there enjoy enjoying duck confit fries without me. But I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't important enough. Now, that maybe is a, a silly example. But the truth is, is that all of us struggle at some point with not feeling important enough, with not feeling smart enough, with not feeling powerful enough, because we understand insignificance. So let's flip that instead, and let's talk about what is significance. It's not just the opposite of insignificance, but it's here where we as followers of Christ, where this really makes a difference. So I want to look at it from two angles. First of all, I want to talk about what is significance based on what the world says. 
what the world teaches us about our importance. And you've got to get this. You've got to understand this. In the world we live in, in the culture where we exist, in our jobs and in our schools, this is the, what significance is. Your significance is relative to the people around you. Your value, your importance is in comparison to other people. A little bit smarter than he is, a little less powerful than she is, and we begin to figure out where our significance flies, lies. And so we have this daily comparison of our lives to other people's lives. And this voice, this narrative begins to play inside of us that tells us you're not quite good enough. You're not quite all that significant. And Satan uses that voice to tell us even a, a worse lie. God's not enough. God's holding something back from you. God's holding out on you. And our lives begin to be driven by this fact that in order to be significant, what we have to do is perform. We have to win we have to own, we have to possess. As long as we're a little bit better than someone else, then we have significance. That's what the world teaches us. But that is not what God says. What I told you right up at the start, in order to understand our significance, we need to know who we are, and whose we are. So I want to take some time with you this morning to look at what the truth of God's word says to us about that. I'm going to look first at who we are. Now there are hundreds, hundreds of scripture passages that talk about our identity. I'm not going to read all of them, okay? I've chose to focus on just a few. The first one I want us to look at is out of Psalm 139. Now, in Psalm 139, the psalmist is speaking and is talking about God's attributes. God knows all. God sees all. God is present everywhere. God is powerful in all ways. And then here in verse 13, there's this shift that goes from talking about God to talking about one little life, one little insignificant life. But here's what the psalmist says. For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. So this great, powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere God made each person uniquely, individually, According to Psalm 139, you are wonderfully, strikingly, perfectly made. 
You see, all the way back in Genesis, we're taught that God created us in God's image. Male and female were created to bear the image of God. And here's Psalm 139 picks that up as well and saying that we are perfectly made. Our identity, who we are, are people made to reflect God. But that's not all. Sin has broken that image. Jesus, cross at the, Jesus Christ at the cross died to redeem and restore that image, but it will be fully and completely restored one day. Look here at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world did not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, right now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know this, when Christ appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Every Christ follower, every single one, one day will be completely like Christ. That's who you are made in the image of God, perfectly and wonderfully made, and one day to be completely restored. A young author named Amy Peterson makes this comment about that. She says, we will one day be restored to the identity that's intended for us, which has been marred by sin. But for now, we can understand that identity in part. And, and I think this is important, we can recognize the image of God in each other. I think that's something that we can do for each other is to see each other not as we are now, but as what we will one day be. I know I've had people in my life at times of brokenness or sin or anything going on who've been able to look at me and say, Barry, you're someone who one day will fully reflect the image of Christ. And they treated me that way. And what a difference it made. We need to know who's, who we are and whose we are. Who we are created in God's image and one day that image will be restored. That's who we are. Let's take a look now at what the Bible teaches about whose we are. Again, hundreds of verses, but I chose this passage out of Isaiah chapter 43. In Isaiah 43, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, but we know that those words apply to us as Christians under the new covenant the promises to them are our promises as well. Listen to what God says about whose we are. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and look at these words. You are mine. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. And since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. This powerful God 
is a personal God. It says two important things in that passage. You belong to me and I love you. That's whose we are. We have the, the identity of reflecting Christ and we belong to a God who loves us no matter what, no matter what life brings our way. And for some of us, life has brought pain and heartache and loss and tragedy. And yet God promises there in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, I will be with you. You are mine and I love you. One other verse about whose we are. It's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It's Isaiah 49, 16, where God says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your name, your name engraved right here on the palm of God's hand. Now, for us here in 2019, that might be a little hard to understand. What, what do you mean written on it? What, is, what did that mean to them? Well, it was a sign of, of specialness, of possession, if you were written on someone's hand. But I sat this week and I tried to think through, what's a modern day parallel of that? How could I describe that in 2019 terms? And I came up with two examples for you, all right? The first one is for those of you who <clears throat> are in my generation. Yes, there's gray right there. You can choose whether you're my generation or not. But I think this will make sense to people of my generation. A modern day translation of Isaiah 49, 16 would be this. Your picture is on my refrigerator. So there God is. Every time God goes to the refrigerator to open it, God looks and goes, oh, there's Barry. I just love him. I, I'm just absolutely crazy about Barry. I, and every day, that's the, the God who loves me and has claimed me as God's own. Okay, so that's a, an example for my generation. If you're in a younger generation, this is what I think that verse would say. Your picture is the background on my cell phone. All right? Because what do we put there? A picture of our wife, our husband, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our son, our daughter, our grandchild, our dog. But someone who's very special and important to us. And, I, and let me tell you, every time God opens his, God's cell phone, oh, there she is. I just love her. Have you seen her? There he is. I'm just crazy about him. That's what it means for our name to be engraved. On God's palm. That's how special we are. To understand our significance, we need to know who we are and whose we are. And so to me, that asks the question, so what? What do I do now? How do I live? If I understand this theology, that I'm created in the image of God, I will one day bear the image of God fully, that's who I am, and whose I am, I belong to a God who loves me, a personal God who loves me. How should I live? Well, let me tell you this, because this is how I understand it. God wants us to live that faith out, who we are and whose we are, exactly in the place where he's placed us. 
Where you live, where you work, where you shop and eat and play and go to school is not an accident. God placed you there so that you would faithfully let others know who they are and whose they are so that you would begin to influence the culture for the sake of the kingdom. To be Christian, literally that means a Christ one. To be a Christ one where you work, shop, eat, live, play, and go to school. That's what God wants us to do. Some of you may have read a bit of my biography. It was in the bulletin last week. It was uh, on the website and in the email that Rich sent out. So you may know that I spent some years as a missionary in North Africa. And every summer when I would come back to the U.S., I had to do my fundraising and all that sort of stuff. People were always like, ooh, you're a missionary. Wow, that's so cool. That's so amazing. You're really something. And I was always really uncomfortable with that because I believe we are all missionaries. Some people God calls overseas. Some people God calls to go next door or to the next cubicle. But God calls every single one of us to faithfully live out our identity. So I want you this morning, I want you to meet a missionary. Okay? You ready? Turn to the person sitting beside you and say, you are a missionary. There you go. You have now met a missionary, someone who is called to live out their identity in Christ where they work, live, shop, eat, play, and go to school. Now, turn to the person on the other side of you. That's also a missionary, so give them a high five. Yeah, now look at the person sitting in front of you and turn around to the person sitting behind you and say, you're an amazing missionary of God. You see, we are a church full of missionaries who are called by God to live out this identity, who we are and whose we are. Here at Peachtree Church, we're joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. I love that statement because I think it's real. This church gets it. This is what it's about is to go out and faithfully live that. And as the pastor of spiritual formation, I am humbled by this privilege to do it with you. I'm so honored to get to walk with you and encourage you and support you in that. And the specific part of my calling here is to grow and develop and build these belong communities. In a belong community, you can come to know and be known, to love and be loved, to serve and be served. It's where we get to put this restoration stuff into practice and to work it out, to encourage and pray for and equip each other to go out as missionaries where we work, live, shop, eat, play, and go to school with an identity of who we are and whose we are. So I want to get to know you and encourage you and support you. I want to have coffee with you. Will you have coffee with me? Great. I've just set up 2,000 coffee appointments this morning. I'm going to be a little wired for a while, but that's okay. We'll work that out. We can go to lunch. We can go to dinner. But what an honor and a privilege for me to encourage you in your walk with Christ, to know him better, to follow God more closely, and to help remind you of who you are and whose you are.
Because, my friends, ultimately what it comes down to is this meal right here that we're about to celebrate, where we see the symbols of Christ's sacrifice. In Romans 5.8, it tells us God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we proved our significance, not when we were more powerful or more important than someone, but when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I invite you to the table to remember that, to be equipped by that, to be encouraged by that. Here we have symbols, holy symbols of bread and cup, which are holy signs representing the body and blood of Christ. Here we commune with the God who made us and loves us. Here we remember who we are and whose we are. Will you please pray with me? Gracious God, I thank you and I praise you that for each one of us, who we are is someone created in your image, made to reflect you. And that for each person here, whose we are is that we belong to you, a God who loves us. And I thank you, God, that you give that to us so that we would faithfully live it out in all of the avenues of our life. But most of all, God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross, for body and blood that paid a price that we could never pay, that bought redemption that we could never earn. So come here, God. I specifically ask that you would spiritually nourish us with this meal so that we can be equipped to live faithfully in your world. In the name and for the sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ, amen.